The Protect Your Neck Podcast, UFC 214 Breakdown. It's here, y'all. Peace. Savages, this is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I am your host, Dan Tom, analyst and writer for MixedMartialAnalyst.com, and today we are breaking down UFC 214, the savior of 2017, if you will, the card that's supposed to deliver, the one we're looking forward to, and to be honest, I don't care if it delivers or not, I just want the the damn matchups to happen. You know what matchups I'm talking about. I'm not going to say them because, well, I don't want to jinx it any more than I might have already and you know what this podcast is about we're going to get to it in short order but first we're going to do a quick and i'm going to make it a little more quicker since i'm running a little later with getting this out to y'all thanks for your patience as usual it's much appreciated no complaints here just grateful and wanting to get this out so with uh with with no further wait on that let's get the formalities out of the way just a recap on last weekend um was ufc long island before ufc long island uh I actually uh, cornered uh, my man Rodney James, uh, Rodney James Edgar there uh, for a real MMA event. Uh, Rodney's from Texas, moving out here to Vegas. Um, Kind of in transit, not quite settled yet, but the Savage has been waiting for a fight forever. Uh, Finally got one, was the opening bout, and, uh, you know, asked me for some help on cornering. And I haven't cornered fighters since like facebook's like showing me all my memories from like four or five years ago now so it's like now they're all popping up but yeah i think 2012 was the last time i even worked a corner but um so i i was more than happy to oddly enough as as rusty as that might sound or troubles of as it might sound i was pretty uh confident in doing so because you know lots happened in five years uh especially with this last two years of this job i feel like i've grown a lot having to watch corners study corners and their behavior and kind of a, what to do plus of course yes my own experience of working corners or you know being the competitor uh getting ready to go out and perform and uh you know how sensitive you can be in those times and uh rodney was great though he went out there like a champ if, if anything speaking of going out there like a champ he uh he was supposed to be on the opening bout the curtain jerker and on like two days' notice, they uh, they asked him if he wanted to, to step up and fight for the welterweight titles. Sorry, Marion, your business here, Rodney, but it's it's complimentary, my man. Um, uh, you know, uh, as far as you know, he, he stepped up and and, and fought. Is it not, jo- jo- I think I want to say James, Jimmy Quinlan's famous Irish guy, but uh, this guy's James Quinlan. He looks like me. He looks like a half a Eurasian, um, half white, half Asian type dude, but uh, freaking. Uh, out of one fight team, uh, undefeated, really good kid. Like I looked at him, like he's just like a jacked um, version of Tomas Almeida. Like really led on his feet and just uh, kind of a Muay Thai maelstrom. So we knew we had a tough fight on our hands. But Rodney's such a brave savage, man. He didn't think twice. You know, was in good spirits. Went out there, um, fought his ass off. Fortunately, it didn't go his way. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, Rodney just wanted to give him a shout there because you know. Probably doesn't want to hear it. No one likes, you know, when things don't go their way. But, you know, most people don't even have the balls to even get in there. Um, uh, You know, much less. uh, And Rodney was undefeated before. It's not like it was his first time or whatever. You know, he was undefeated. Some wins under his belt. Uh, So, I mean, he wasn't wasn't green, you know. Uh, But, but man, just just the balls that it takes to step up like that. And, you know, 
into the main event. And uh, it's funny that the refs were uh, Joe Sullivan, who I like. He refed my first fight. Um, and uh, Chris Tyone, who we ended up getting, thankfully. And the other one was, was Steve Mazzagatti. So I tweeted him, like, oh, shit. It's like fucking referee Russian roulette here. And uh, fucking Mazzagatti, man. Ah, I, now I got a Mazzagatti story. <laughs> Rodney, I'm uh, building you up and, you know... Uh, trying to keep the story appropriate but goddamn my man uh i don't really check fingernails because i have a really bad habit of biting my nails so it's never a problem but you're supposed to trim your nails and uh my man my man ronnie they weren't they actually weren't even bad i think they were just kind of being picky mazagati was being picky uh hence why i brought mazagati up and uh, he got all pissy with it and uh he uh, gave me a little bit of a talking to. Actually, not bad. Mazagati actually chewed out the official, the corner official, because um, he came out with us because we were the last one to go, and he was in charge of watching the room. And so it was his technically his responsibility, but uh, so he got real chewed out by Mazagati. But Ma- then Mazagati, like he, he kind of grins at me, like, "Hey, what's up, buddy?" And I'm, you know, I'm fucking half Asian, so I'm used to people mistaking me for like everybody, especially because like, there's a bunch of fucking half Asian Hawaiian looking tattooed dudes at Extreme Couture. I'm just used to people mistaking me. So Mazagati comes to kind of giving me like the smile and nod, like we're buddies. And I'm like, "Oh, this guy's probably mistaking me for somebody." I'm like, "Hey, what's up, Steve?" And kind of hey, can coming here close, like he's like, "You should have watched out for your fighter." Yeah clipping the nails is embarrassing and i'm like oh jesus christ i'm like i didn't even think of that the nails thing and then um he made a big deal about it and then um you know you see him clip uh the officials have to clip the fighter's nails at the check-in station then he made me clip like it was only like one or two of rodney's nails and that was it like it wasn't even bad i'm like really this isn't even but yeah anyways mazagati kind of an asshole <laughs> leave it at that but it was cool being back in the corners because it just you know, it was giving you it was reminding me of, you know, the past, like I kind of said, but also, you know, in regards to what we talk about here on this podcast in fighting and, and you kind of see the momentum. It's funny, you know, you were all strangers and red corner and blue corner, but by the end of the night, you know, there's always a monitor no matter how shitty it is. Like sometimes you're fighting. Like I remember oh, these one fights where like it was a horse stables to, to, to warm up and back. And, you know, uh, we, <laughs> I'm not even kidding you, but this one was pretty, you know, it's kind of ghetto. It was like backstage and like, they had porta potty set up for us, put it that way. But they had to monitor the fights, and you're all in there in the corner, and there's this camaraderie that grows in the corner where you start just cheering for just whoever's in your corner, and you know they come back if they win, and you feel the energy, and you're like, yeah, positive energy to the corner, red corner, yeah, woo. And when they lose, you, you feel that energy too, and you find yourself comforting people you didn't know. But you're also kind of like, you don't want to give too much attention to it because of the superstition. You don't want any energy to rub off on you. And it's just this weird thing how, how sensitive it is. And then especially if like, you know, there was a team all out there, out there from Hawaii and they had these two girls that came out. And they were like, one was undefeated and they both just were in like tough fights. They lost tough decisions. And you could kind of just see how it the first one's performance kind of affected the mood of the other. And you don't really see it too much high-level MMA. Like, it's rare occasions. Like, And even then, it's all speculation, right? Like, it has to be some rare occasion like uh, Sergio Pettis and Anthony Pettis. Then uh, that Texas card. Uh, the numbers escaping me. But you know what card. Where, where, where uh, Anthony lost his title and Sergio got knocked out by Benoit. And Anthony lost his title to RDA. Um, you know, there's certain things like that where, you know, the mood kind of gets affected. And, and there could be weird things like, like on this card coming up. Uh, I think Henry Hoof has to do back-to-back corners because he's doing Robbie Lawler now who is the uh, – they don't call it a swing bout, but it's after the opening bout. And the opening bout is um, Ozdemir, another guy in the room. So we'll get to that later, but that's kind of a quick turnaround. And you don't really think of these things even on podcast.
podcast, we were kind of breaking down like this, but then just being in the corner kind of reminded me of that. Anyway, sorry for that kind of step down memory lane. Um, but yeah, then the next night was a Long Island recap. We went seven, six, and picks, two and one, and parlay pieces, uh, uh, straight plays. Uh, the one on both of those obviously was both Dennis Bermudez, so that means I owe a double. I am wrong in a dipshit, uh, Darren Elkins. Uh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy, Darren Elkins. Um, yeah, credit to Darren Elkins. Hard guy to fucking read. I mean, again, it was a close fight. It's not like anything special. And I wasn't one complaining, by the way. I actually had no complaints. I scored it the same way. Uh, even despite the bias of betting, I, I, I scored it for Elkins. I, I, didn't, I had no issue with the scorecard. But he's just one of those hard guys to read, man. I mean, and I'm not going to still make the same mistake. I'm not going to maybe, you know, put units behind him. Not that I put a lot behind him anyways. It, it, it really didn't. Um, aside from the parlay, uh, didn't, didn't, you know, fuck with me too bad as far as the straight plays because, uh, those cash, including a dog, which we'll get to, or Dos Santos will just say that. And, uh, so, you know, you live and learn, but, uh, I guess what I was trying to say is that I still don't want to overcorrect the steering wheel, I guess. And with the Darren Elkins and like, you know, I'm definitely giving the credit where the guy, you know, credit's due, but as far as like, uh, he's the, you know, I actually thought he looked better in his last two performances than he did in this one. But again, that's the matchup. Dennis Bermuda is deceptively harder than people think and, you know, harder to fight than people think. And I still stand by that. But what I was wrong on or, I guess, underestimated, not that I thought he might have been the sharpest tool in the shed in the first place. And, it's, you know, but I, 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 I duly noted that, uh, you know, fight IQ, certain guys, after they fail the test certain amount of times, they've been around forever, like a Dennis Bermudez or a Gian Viante. Um, <laughs> The fight IQ, we shouldn't be surprised at this point, in other words. So uh, live and learn on those ones. Um, though the Viante almost cashed, but I'm, despite even putting a unit on that, or what was it? No, not even a unit, a half unit, whatever it was. Um, happy for Cummins, man. Like I said, a little biased. It was nice seeing my old former coach, Neil Melanson, in his corner. And a tough motherfucker. I don't like seeing him take this damage. And again, like Elkins, don't want to overcorrect the steering wheel because I mean, you just look at it. Pat Cummins from his last two to three victories even, you know, it, Going back to Cavalcante, even fucked up. He's looking like Rocky at the end of Rocky One, you know, in the victory. So I'm hoping Pat can put together victories in the future, just not having to do it at that cost because it's not a good trend in victory and defeat for the guy. Um, Burgos almost got the finish, impressive nonetheless. Uh, the fight's to avoid. Um, Kennedy, I guess he ran to avoid that, kind of went how we thought. Um, let's see, I'll pull it up here. Uh, Kelleher and Vera was avoid for a reason. I guess that the spidey senses were correct in the sense of we had the upset there, right? And then uh, Natal Anders, uh, the debutante, even though I pick Anders, who initially opened the dog and the line swayed publicly. Um, you know, dangerous to pick a to pick a uh, you know a dog debutante like that, but but he uh, came through, or you know, as the pick as far as that goes, anyways. But um, but yeah. Uh, and then the prop that did catch was cash was of course Weidman versus Gastelum does not go the distance. I should have went with my again, not gonna do a revisionist history here, but I did state it clearly in my breakdown and, and on the breakdown here as well. So uh it's not like I'm I'm doing revisionist history, but uh, I did state that my initial lean, which I should have stayed with, was Weidman by sub. And again, I, I harp on the common narrative and to go against it, but like I also say, I'm no better than y'all. I get sucked into the common narrative too. Was saying it just maybe if not last cast the cast before that and I, I say it all the time and and here's another proof I'm no better than it I get caught up in the uh, in the common narrative as well and as my initial instinct was correct in this time and um, 
you know, as somebody who 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 turtles too much, uh, it was going to cost gasoline in here. And I remember saying, I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but I want to man Robin Isabel uh, at Roseman Isabel at MMA, and uh, other coach uh, for the amateur head coach for amateur team Dennis Davis also coaches many of the pros and and a longtime fixture Dennis Davis. I remember talking to them before I wrote the summary earlier in the week I was in in for a class and they're like who you got and I'm like man to be honest um you know I got this prop either way because I'm not confident I'm I'm, I'm back and forth but my initial lean here is Weidman by sub. And uh they're like really and you know I was explaining I'm like hey man as somebody who turtles too much because as you know I'm a big propensity of the turtle I talk about it all the time in here I talk about it all the time in my breakdowns it will catch up and I didn't see it as um a I've been just freaking ridiculously busy to to catch up on anything even if I wanted to but B as you know um really just trying not to watch unless you know just need something to watch you know watch like you know the beat or the MMA hour or interviews and stuff like that but as far as like luke thomas's uh what was he doing on the fighting channel the monday morning uh uh analysis um i or the maybe it was his post fight show i don't know i just saw luke's tweet about uh was, he mentioned eduardo tellis which caught my ear and you, you all know i'm a huge eduardo tellis fan um somebody who again Preaches from the turtle. I would end up in there a lot. And aforementioned coach I was talking about earlier, Pat Cummins, Coach Neil Lanson, say, "Hey man, you keep ending up in the spot. Go watch some Eduardo Tellez, um, and it'll help you out." And to this day, it's just my spot. It's you know I preach it, and guys don't catch up from it, and it's just a lack spot, and it's it, it's a very vulnerable spot. But if you get comfortable from it, there's the principle of you're comfortable from a worse spot. You can only move up from there. But more importantly, you get comfortable from a spot like that. That's a key training spot in MMA to get back to your feet slash to transition to many other uh, grappling positions. And more importantly, just re-wrestling, getting back on the fight, upping your chances, getting on top even from Turtle, knowing how to do that. You give yourself an an edge in a spot that people just fear. Like, oh, no, I'm not going to give up my back, you know, um, which is why most guys will just stay on their back instead. And when they do, they don't do it correctly. They don't tripod with the appropriate ski slope that I talk about here all the time, fighting hands. So uh, I'm sure uh, I'm going to cut the recap short. I'm sure Luke already did a great one earlier this week. All I know is that he mentioned Eduardo Tellis, so I really hope he, he talked on the turtle uh, and did that justice. Luke's great, by the way. Respect him. Uh, met him in person. A uh, nice guy in person. I know people are either one way or the other on him. Uh, so it seems, at least, according to Twitter feeds. But uh, a big fan of that dude. So I'm sure he did a great job. But uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm sure you can go check out um, his stuff for more in depth. But that's going to be it for my Long Island recap. We're going to move forward to get get stuff done here. Uh, oh, by the way, that recap too. I was just so fucking tired. I, I by the way, I haven't gotten any more sleep for this recording. But last recording was so bad. I was like reading off my parlay thing, and like, I read it as like minus instead of uh, instead of plus money. Which yeah, my and then I also um, inadvertent apparently. Great minds think alike. Uh, I also said uh, it's so stupid. I don't even know why, but I'll just use it as a, an excuse to. Uh, Someone pointed out, so I was using an excuse to give this podcast a shout out because I actually like this podcast. I like the host. The host listen. Uh, some of the hosts, at least, I know who I talk to, listen to this show. So shout out to the MMA analysis. Uh, who, by the way, those guys create most of the nick. Uh, m- most of these nicknames I see floating around Twitter, um, and apparently they created another nickname, which doesn't surprise me. That I, 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 Elijah Dusky, which I was jokingly just kind of came to the top of my head and 
probably was floating on a lexicon because again that's one of the few podcasts that I will listen to but uh but yeah, uh, great minds think alike. So I did not mean to take credit for a name of another podcast. Just like, for example, the Comey event. That's right. They get credit for the Bobby Knuckles that everybody uses. And uh, and uh, so I just try to, even though it's stupid, I know it's fucking nicknames bullshit. But try to try to make sure uh, you know give the appropriate credit where it's due. And it was just an excuse to give that uh, podcast a shout out. Go listen to them um, for the hog analysis. All right. Uh, Dana White Tuesday Night Contender Series people asking about that not doing any uh, recaps not planning to do any breakdowns for that um, so sorry all that Snoopcast looks pretty fun uh, <clears throat> but uh, from what I the little clips that I saw uh, <laughs> looks like it'd be a fun time to hang out in there I guess that's what I was trying to say and uh, let's get on to UFC 214 as the last formality kind of segues, segues to UFC 214 just want to give a shout out catching up on the story I don't know the details but man my brothers in arms, uh, Matt Wells from MMA Latest, got uh, da- uh, Danny Austin Post Media, uh, Jose Young's fan sided, uh, and we're on a hike. Uh, Jim Edwards as well with MMA Uno. I believe that the guys were, I don't know the details, the guys were apparently on a hike in Runyon Canyon, real popular canyon. Everybody goes up and stuff. And apparently they parked their car, the car they were in, in a place they thought was safe, like a nice neighborhood. And they came back, the car was broken into. And, like, uh, three of the guys, I think Matt, Danny, and Jose lost, like, their, their equipment, their their laptops and stuff. And they're out there covering, they're out there covering uh, UFC 214. And, you know, it's not cheap. It's not easy <laughs> to get out there. And they're, essentially, their equipment is taken from them. So they're scrambling. I don't even know if there is a solution. Or there really is. I mean, you know, uh, they filed a police report already. But, I mean, you know. I don't know as far as there's any promises or solutions. If, if there's anything to do, guys, reach out to me if anything I can share or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, it just sucks. I just wanted to give him a shout-out, man. That's just this just really shitty. Uh, hopefully um, they can get something figured out and their trip is salvageable as far as experience, work, etc. and so forth. Shout-out to you guys. All right, UFC 214 breakdown. As usual, you know how we do it. We're doing it from bottom to top. I'm getting the odds pulled up because I might have, yep, got logged out. And uh, we're going to go uh, with the first fight, which is the very first fight as well on the fights to avoid list. That's right. Taking the 3-1 to one underdog, Josh uh, Berkman. I don't know if the, the aforementioned coach, uh, Dennis Davis, I was just talking about, Shreem Couture, has been uh, has cornered Berkman through a lot of his fights. Um, not done the camps with him, but corner him. Because uh, a lot of times Berkman would, would finish off his camp at Extreme Couture. He's a you know next-door neighbor there in Utah. But, uh, man, I got to imagine, you know, it's always weird retirement. And, yeah, you know, the bot, when's the bottom going to drop out? Arguably already it did, you know. Going back to the Patrick Cote fight where Berkman finally, you know, the, the slugger of the warlord he is, finally sustained his first TKO loss in Patrick Cote in 2015 in August, I believe. That was a barn burn. That was also the first first card uh, officially broke down here at MixedMartialAnalyst.com. A little trivia. But, um, but yeah, um, that was... Uh, you know, and he, he's been in some more since then. A little deceptive, you know. You look at, you know, the two fights before that against, you know, welterweights, top welterweights, tough stylistic matchups, both, I believe, on short notice. Um, and then, you know, another split decision loss to welterweight and Zach Otto later later on down the line. Um, and then Michelle Prezeres, who, if you look at his losses, like what, Paul Tiago and Kevin Lee are the only losses in his career. I mean, he's a shortstop guy for 155, but he made his debut against... 
Paul Tiago and Paul Tiago still had, you know, muster in his custard. I don't even know if that's a saying, but whatever. Let's roll with it. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so, again, it can be a little deceiving when you look at uh, Berkman's record. And, uh, you know, again, the guys that kind of outgrappled him were supposed to outgrapple him. Slash, he made really, you know, poor fight IQ choices in that Dong Young Kim fight. He essentially gave that fight away because he was, like, literally hurting Dong Young Kim every round, like, every time he was exchanging. They would just, like, decide to wrestle. That was kind of a weird fight. And um, I also know that he was sick for the... Um, sick for the... Uh, Hector Lombard fight. Um, and... Uh, yeah, let's see. And he's fighting uh, yeah, Drew Dober. And again, Drew Dober is kind of... It's weird. I mean, I was pretty... I got you know pretty high on his, his win over Jason Gonzalez. But really, what was that? You know, um, even though Jason Gonzalez is tall, framey, you know, looked like he could... You know, it was dangerous striking. His defense really wasn't that great. And the quality of opponents and wins um, wasn't that great. So really, what was that? Then he comes out in his next fight, which was his last fight, Drew Dober's. Uh, he fought Alvin Mercier. And Alvin Mercier kind of underrated from that southpaw uh, stance. But Alvin Mercier mainly kicks. And that was like kind of the first fight where we were seeing Alvin Mercier really grow his hands. And he pieced up Dober, should have had uh, an advantage. Now, that could be a southpaw versus southpaw thing. That a lot of people have a hard time getting, but wait, especially if you're a Muay Thai guy like Dober, shouldn't the southpaw versus southpaw matchup be even better? Yes, you'd think so, especially for a guy like Dober who has the Muay Thai styling where he likes leg kicks. You think he should be grateful to finally have a, a dance partner who it's going to, you know, the leg kicks are going to match up where he doesn't have to do those, those drastic outside angles and weird inside leg kicks and all those stuff from the back foot. Um, but no, no, you know, he just he looked like he was having trouble from the get go. Had a brief moment of success to almost like come back in um, the second round, but then uh, got reversed. And even though Dober showed improvements, like against Scott Holtzman, who again, Holtzman, who, you know, he's a guy who's, I don't know about being top 15, but, you know, he's a guy you could probably make some money betting on if it's outside the top 15, depending on the matchup. Uh, and aside from that, it was what? What was his wins? Uh, Jamie Varner, who was on his way out in, the, in a weird perform, in a real lackluster performance, right? Uh, the Jason Gonzalez, who just point to Scott Holtzman, but that was kind of a weird fight where it was like each guy was doing the opposite. You expected Holtzman to muscle um, Dober down like he did in previous fights that weren't going his way. And instead, he wanted to strike, which I guess wasn't as weird in hindsight because was, you saw Scott Holtzman from that point on trying to imitate Mike Tyson in his boxing. Um, but yeah, it was just kind of a weird matchup. Even the commentators were saying so in that one. So, and it's really weird, you know, you, you go back and there was what that weird, no contest. So even though it was a terrible call with the Leandro Silva or whatever, with a guillotine, um, it's not like he was looking good in that fight, Dober. And, you know, you got to keep going back to his, 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 his last one, you know, before that stretch of UFC losses was to a UFC fighter, but outside the UFC and the local scene to Tony Sims, who... You know, guy didn't didn't expect him to be a world beater, but he definitely wasn't as good as I expected. I was I was I was high on him in the sense of like you know high on him as far as you know outside the top fifteen type of guy high on high on him. And uh, in that fight, if you look, it was a split decision, and I, I think it was pretty pretty clear not clear case. It was like a robbery or anything, but clear argument I should say for Tony Sims. So I don't even think Dober even won that fight. So I mean. You look at like the past four or five years, and it becomes real slim pickings for for Drew Dober. And then you look at, 
you know, he's getting outstruck by grapplers and, and rocked and these damage trends despite stepping up his training and, and training partners around in the past couple of years. It's just, you don't know what you're going to get. So it's on the avoid list, but I'm sprinkling a little bit on Berkman. Uh, again, the analysis lines up for why I feel the line's inflated, hence it's on the avoid list. And yeah, I got some love for Berkman too, so maybe do one of those fun little dollar bets there. All right, next bet, or next, not next bet, there's no 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 bets on this one either because um I don't think it's officially on the avoid list. Um, well, maybe it is actually. Let me see. Help if you pull it up, Dan. It's not going from memory so much. All right, I know. It actually is Shelton versus Brooks. Again, 125-pound fight that should be competitive. And even when the on-paper says it's not going to be competitive, like I say a lot with these 125 fights, uh, these flyweights, since they don't have the power and they're super technical. And not like the females in the sense of a developing sample size, but again, you're you're heading toward those similar themes. Uh, the swings are like a heavyweight fight, and yes, again, not in the sense of they're going to knock each other out, but as far as the swings and momentum, you see underdogs kind of come in and, uh, you know, um, kind of uh, be careful be careful what you uh, what you pay for there um, as far as, you know, flat weights go. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, as high as I am on Shelton, I do think he's got a lot of potential. I, and I wanted to pick him here, but I, I, think, uh, I think this is... Uh, this could be a potentially bad match from Jared Brooks from what I've seen. And again, it's hard to pull up relevant stuff on the Jared, on Jared Brooks as far as striking and, and even some you know, grappling stuff because uh, most of his stuff available online is sp- spread out early. And he also is one of those guys. He's got the crazy um, amateur careers that are, are uncredited. And you guys notice this from Michigan. It's a real similar theme. I forget who was talking about it, the, the dude who... Uh, Jared Brooks trains with. He trains with guys who are good, are good striking, which is another reason why I have to imagine he's only improving because you look at the old fights of Jared Brooks, you could see there's fight-to-fight improvements there. You have to imagine it continues. He's still only young. Um, and he's had a couple of camps now that didn't come with fights. So you have to imagine if he's young and doing the right things, he's only taking improvements from those. But, yeah, he's training with guys like Crookshank for what it's worth, can strike, and uh, his other training partner who just made his debut in that really entertaining fight. I can't remember his name. Cody Stammen or something like that? Yeah. Um, again, guys who can again guys who can strike and also guys who have those crazy um, amateur records. And even a guy, a coach, uh, he fought Bellator, and he's a pro fighter. <sighs> Some of the hardest leg kicks. I feel like my leg still hurts and that indentions. Justin Janes. I think he had like 50 amateur fights or, or it's something. And I was like, what the heck? When I met him back in the day and he was explaining, he's like, yeah, Michigan, because he was college, you know, it was, it was wrestling, going to college and wrestling in college. And um, it was one of those things where you could still fight amateur and wrestle in college and it kind of didn't go on the records. You, could get, you also get paid for it. So, you know, you can, um, you know, whether you're just like a guy with a job and doing it as a hobbyist or you're like these other guys who are wrestling and going to college and needed something kind of competitive but off the books but I can still get experience and make some money for, which you really can't do to amateur in a lot of places. Even here in Vegas, some pay their amateurs, shit. Um, yeah, you know, so it's a weird, unique thing they got going there. I'm sure someone can explain it better. I'm butchering it, but that's the basic gist of it as far as the Michigan scene goes. So you'll see guys like stacked amateur records. And uh, say what you will about mileage, it's really good for experience, something that, you know, you hear boxing guys talk about, especially boxing guys, people that are aware or educated in both the boxing and MMA scenes as far as pointing to amateur programs being a big difference and a potential um, factor in the development of MMA if it 
you know, borrows from that structure and continues its own growth in that, 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 that trajectory. All right, uh, let's move on to the next flight. Uh, on the avoid list as well. Oh, all the avoid list is right in the row. Kylan Curran versus Alessandro Albu. Only two fights for Albu. Bodybuilder, karate-based, judo. Uh, the judo, I suspect, should keep her on the feet, especially if it's improved from her last fight, which is weird. It's like two years ago. I don't know what she's been doing, hence why it's on the avoid list. But I'll still pick her over Kylan Curran, despite Kylan Curran. Ah, God love for you, Kylan. Uh, my beautiful Hawaiian sister. But, uh, but man, you know, I, no need to dogpile and talk shit on Kylan, but, you know, uh, she exactly, uh, even in fights she's winning, she, she's found ways to kind of give away. And it's just kind of hard to bet. We, we got to see her develop, you know. She's training the right places with Rufka Gym and stuff, but then I don't, and I didn't see her with, like, his high level of training partner. Not that they're not there, but, like, you know, like, I think one of the main training partners I keep seeing in her social media is, like, a girl who's, like, 17 years old. Like, she's, like, still in high school. So I don't know if, like, that's her training partner. She's just beating her up to get her confidence up for this fight, which maybe is not a bad idea, but I just, I don't know. I don't know if I'm seeing anything promising, even in the little things of, like, shadow boxing as far as, like, the arms are doing the right thing, but she's not really sitting. She kind of has that loose, empty posture when she's throwing the punches still. Like, again, just overanalyzing off basic clips of uh, shadow boxing, but those can be really telling, especially for fighters at the more developing levels, to put it in a nice way. So it's a void. Hope you avoid it too. All right. Um, Calvin Guitar, Andre Feely, on the avoid list of inflated lines. Um, you know, I, I'm high on Feely, and uh, you know, I even picked him against Rodriguez. It's crazy as that sounds, because that's like Rodriguez's most impressive win, right? Uh, but uh, anyways, neither here nor there. I was thinking Feely, though he's always kind of live on the feet, but defense is a problem for him. I also feel like wrestling is underrated, but turns out uh, Qatar, who again, not so much the Michigan scene and not so much as um, Jared Brooks, but has healthy amateur and like kickboxing experience, I believe, or at least some like kickboxing smokers. But he he uh, he started off as wrestling, a uh, wrestler Qatar. And uh, you could see it. I thought he was just like a naturally athletic dude, a good sense of his hips, because he's just can. Seems like he not just kind of sprawls or defends takedowns well, but he doesn't even really fully sprawl. He does just enough of getting his hips back to avoid the takedown, and still keeps that offensive pressure that he comes forward with. Which, against a good counter striker, there's openings there, especially if it hasn't improved from the footage. And you know, again, it's freaking scattered, sporadic footage. A lot of it early on. Uh, apparently this guy's like a promoter, um, listened to a real informative interview, uh, that was done last year, not even this year, but last year still shout out to James Lynch uh, and his YouTube channel. They're all just killing it with the interviews, really informative and helpful when there's a lack of sample size, kind of helps us fill in the blanks as analysts, betters and stuff like that. So go check his thing out. Uh, but yeah, um, I guess that's where this, this kid's been guitar, um, so, and he sounds like a real smart guy, does the right things, trains, you know, Sid Yotong, a uh, bunch of other places as well, training partner, guys like Rob Font and stuff for, for a minute. So, yeah, I'm gonna I'm just going to kind of uh, stay away and kind of watch that one. Uh, didn't make any plays on that either. No, I'm stuck to it on the avoid list. Uh, next fight, though, do have a play, a straight play. Uh, we have uh, Hanato Carnero. Uh, now at minus 150, uh, Brian Ortega plus 130. Played Carnero 
uh, earlier in the week, uh, minus 140, not much lower, but earlier in the week, he was minus 140. And I just played him straight for one unit there, listed it on the straight plays. Uh, Carnero, you know, I underestimated him before. Um, again, just kind of a hard read where it's like he's doing the right things. Um, and he doesn't even, you know, I shouldn't compare him to Elkins because he looks, you know, his technique looked good. I never doubted his technique in that sense, but it just didn't jump off the page to me. Against a proven guy from the wrestling to counter-wrestling, offensive-defensive, which is underrated to the proven, obviously, striking and chin to Jeremy Stevens. I was like, oh shit, man! This is a Jeremy. This is a, this is a, a decent price on a, on a fight. Jeremy Stevens should win, especially if you look at you know kind of his history and his trend. Hmm, was wrong. It was a close fight, but again, even though my betting bias was on Stevens, I had no problem with it. I actually was on the other side of it. Not only did I not complain, I scored it, again. I scored it from Moicano. So, um, then going back, you know, to do this tape study for this fight, just even more so. You know, uh, from a stick and move to just his more process, defensive, and offensive alike. Whereas, uh, I'm a guy probably higher on most than T-City Ortega. He's real fun to watch, but, you know, and being real honest, especially where he was almost audited in his last fight against Clay Guida, who maybe not as much as a surprise seeing that the renaissance that Guida is on. And he did show signs of it there. I mean, he dropped Ortega uh, cleanly in that first round and was just on him, right? But, uh... Ortega, you know, would lose the second round too, obviously, and uh, pick it up in the third and get the finish. But the lack of process, he's relying on those third round finishes. And you know me, I love third round finishers, but this is going to be a tough match. Moicano shows he's one of those skinny guys, but the skinny guys that'll, you know, Brad Pitt and Fight Club, skinny guys will fight to the burger. And uh, he's got a chin. Uh, how do we know that? Well, at Jeremy, Jeremy Stevens, again, proven guy, proven power. And uh, from his takedown defense, even being able to take Jeremy Stevens down, which is something you know, real deceptive. I mean, Jeremy Stevens was holding his own offensively, defensively in the brief wrestling exchanges, though not many with Burrell. Hennon Burrell, who we'll get to in a second, uh, next even. But um, but yeah, um, Carnero's good there too, so I don't see him getting too carried away. And when he is on top, even though we haven't had to see much, again, this is supposed to be, the ground's supposed to be a specialty. Uh, Black Belt Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I believe, uh, you know, works with, uh, is it Team Constrictor? Like Hani Yaya's guys, so we came up with through, and yeah, I mean he does you know the right things, puts his hands inside the uh, inside the shoulders, inside the biceps when playing inside the guard, where you know Ortega tends to get a lot of his submissions from. Uh, passes really well, and yeah, Ortega's you know can, can take some backs too, right? Got some rear naked chokes, real dangerous from there. Even can drop from the back to a triangle. Ortega dangerous around that range, of course, yes. But Carnero, you just see it, man. Uh, Moicano, it's just this little uh, quick drop of a dime. Hip, you know, his hips just spring uh, from almost touching the mat to springing up and taking him back. Like little brief instances that that tell me um, he could put Ortega in check. And again, if a guy has a good triangle choke or a good rear naked choke or he's a good back taker, chances are he's got good back defense or you know triangle defense or whatever his specialty is. If he knows the offense. Chances are he knows the defense because he spends so much time trying to beat guys' defense, getting a step ahead of them. So um, usually not everybody, but if you're applying somewhat, you don't have to be like a, a quote-unquote smart fighter, but you know if you're somewhat intelligent fighter and can kind of uh, deconstruct what you do, then yeah, that, that that should that should balance out as far as your offense for defense in regards to specialties. So I like Carnero. I like Carnero here to take a decision. Um, again, both guys are durable. Both guys are going to be difficult to submit soberly. So uh, I see this one going the decision. So I uh, what is the profile? What is the profile? 
Oh, yeah, I took Carnell by decision as well because I see it going by decision because why well, I just said the durability. Carnell by decision, quarter unit, um, plus 100 I got it at. I don't know what it's at now. And um, Carnero, uh, half unit. As all my straight plays are half units, minus 140. He was the only favorite, though. The other two are dogs. Starting with the next one, as I got Henan Barrow, half unit play, at plus 120. He is currently plus 100. And the come, uh, the the, fa- the favorite, I should say, Aljamain Sterling, minus 120. Now, Aljo has impressed me a lot. The things I've criticized him for was boxing range, aggressiveness, comfortability, striking. Boy, has he improved those. You know, he had a close loss where he took those ball shots against a Sun Sao, who a Sun Sao, again, underrated, even by myself, your boy here. Under, I will admit he's underrated, though I did pick a Sun Sao in that fight. Needless to say, I, it was a close fight. Comes back, looks great against Taquino Mendez, who, you know, I know he's not a striker, so hence kind of parlaying to this pick here, but still, Mendez, better striker than, you know, his accolades account for, than most people give him credit for, and Aljo did very well. Punched even better in that fight than the fight previous, as he should. He should be improving. He's at the age where fight-to-fight improvements happen. So I expect to see more fight-to-fight improvements from Aljo. I don't know about fight-to-fight improvements from Brow, although he is changing camp. He is changing camp, right? I think this is the first one with, uh, I don't know if it's Latrell MMA in New Mexico, but he's training in New Mexico. Excuse me. And uh, I believe with a camp that um, Klogic Jelly uh, went to, which if I believe that's Latrell MMA, and which is altitude, which is great. Again, altitude is going to help with cardio, conditioning, and uh, uh, the thing I said about the Brazilian fighters, where I, I said I wasn't coming at them, I was just speaking a truth and a reality. They even admit, you know, the edu- the education, the culture, availabilities for certain diets. All these things are kind of different there, like I was talking about. And I cited Henan Barral and Jose Aldo is like kind of, you know, for guys, it's just few considered pound for pound greats, right? A few few holes in their game. That was one of the the criticisms, questions, speculations, if you will. Uh, to a certain extent, more so Brow, obviously, maybe than Aldo, but 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 yeah, uh, Brow's who we're talking about here, and so when he going back to 135 could be troubling, but the fact that he's going down, back down to 135 uh, after a win at 145, which means he doesn't feel like oh, you know, if he would have lost after the Stevens fight to uh, Felipe Nova at 145, and it's like oh, I have two losses in a row, got to reinvent myself again. And then it becomes like, ooh, now is he moving because he's got two losses? Is he moving camp? Is he moving weight classes because he's got two losses? He's backs against the wall. And you're making choices because of pressure. Not that there's no there's pressure regardless if you win or lose. There's pressure in every fight. But I'm saying that's much more pressure than if you just win a fight. Whereas Brow, yes, he just won his fight. So when a guy just wins a fight and then he's still making choices to not just improve, which everybody kind of that's you think everybody does that in theory, right? But he's making active choices to improve that are outside of his comfort zone. That's a really good sign. That's a really intelligent sign for somebody. Again, he's coming off a win. Uh, so I, I like this from Brow that he's doing this. He looks in amazing shape from all his pictures consistently too. Not just recently where like, oh, they look good. But then you look at their, their photo like three weeks back and they're kind of heavy. And you're like, ooh, they did that in a short time. You know, and you kind of start doing that math. And you start kind of weighing that intangible out into the weight cut depending on the person. And, and you know, all that stuff, and how well deep in the rabbit hole you're you want to look at that stuff. But, but it's a reasonable, reasonable question for Brow, right? He's had he had a history of this stuff. But I don't feel it's going to be an issue here 
And uh, if it's not an issue, then we have a potentially improved Burrell. And even if we don't have a potentially improved Burrell, let's just look at a healthy Burrell doing what Burrell does. And what Burrell does is some of the best takedown defense all time in the Bantamweight division. You know, I'm, gosh, I don't have it offhand right now. I probably could pull it up in one second. I believe it was like 94%. The fight, you know, going into the Stevens fight, I believe it was, and now it's uh, oh, 97%. Wow, it even went up. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if Aljo's not able to get him down, he's going to have to strike with him, and Aljo will go kick for kick with guys, and he showed he can, but, man, is that what you really want to do with Hen and Burrell? You know, and uh, Aljo's doing better, like, rolling out, you know, under under left hooks. Like, he was hit with uh, left hooks a lot by, you know, in his fight with Caraway and his fight with um, Asuncao. But you saw in his last fight uh, with Tokino, he was exiting and rolling out, which is really good considering that the left hook is a money punch for Burrell. But that being said, I still see Burrell having potency with that left hook, which feeds again into his right leg kick. And if Aljo wants to get sucked into that game, I'm going to favor Burrell's combinations, his potency, his process, his defense, his offense, his footwork, his takedown defense. And again, just like Moicano, these guys initially made their name in jiu-jitsu uh that's where they were initially comfortable and before striking before mma so if it does get into grappling stanzas um i think brow will hold up fine it's just his, his cardio his mental state his confidence all that but like i like i previously said you know the camp changes coming off a win doing doing these things all all positive signs there so i i played brow straight up and he is the second prop uh, again, just 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 fucking around with these props. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not going heavy. Just just a, just a quarter unit there, but it was plus 186, which I thought was pretty decent for Brow decision. You know, uh, and again, both guys are hard to submit. Both guys durable. Both guys need the win. Both guys high pressure. Both guys credible threats. No matter your opinion, no matter the side you're on, you, you do acknowledge that your fighter is probably going to acknowledge the other guy's threats. So safe to say that this one goes over if you're playing that. Which um actually, uh, that, the parlay. By the way, I put no parlay pieces. Uh, I like. I, I usually don't do that, but I should be doing that more because there's been times where I really didn't feel comfortable, but I felt like I wanted to have something with you. You know, to put out for you guys. So I, I did end up just going with, you know, um, like, my, like I always do technically by by the rule, you know, my most confident favorites. But sometimes just because it's your most confident favorite and it's within range doesn't mean you should play the damn thing. Um, so that's why I pulled back and I'll explain why the, I didn't put the obvious choices of the main and co-main event when we get to those fights. So we'll be breaking those down in the second half. But uh, that's why I didn't have um, any parlay choices. So instead, I just put a fun parlay. Uh, which, again, one of the choices kind of technically, in a small sense, contradict with my official pick. Although, if you read my breakdown, you, you'll see that it actually doesn't contradict with it at all. And, again, it's just it's for fun. It's stated there, like, multiple times. It's just a fun parlay that I play. It's the only parlay I played, to be honest. And, uh, again, even if it's something for fun and stupid, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> Whether I'm, I'm, I'm serious, super confident, or fucking around, and I'm only, you know... Only throwing a little bit of a sprinkle love on there. Um, I'm still gonna I'm still gonna post it up for you. And so yeah, I wanted to give you something there. So there's a three leg of props, and yeah, it's only props just to kind of give you an idea. <laughs> Again, reinforcing why there's not there's not a lot of like for betting on this card, especially for parlaying, which again, crazy crazy game. 
crazy game in MMA. If, if betting on MMA is not crazy enough, but uh, but yeah, the Shelton Brooks that we already passed starts round three minus three seventy. Just kind of was decent parlay fodder if you're looking for parlay fodder. And yeah, Aljo Burrell over two and a half at minus two sixty. I think that's is the only over um, I like even really on this whole card. So yeah, all right. Uh, last fight on the prelims on the FXX. That weird bullshit. Uh, Ricardo Lamas. Uh, opened as the favorite, but now he's plus 100, whereas Jason Knight, he's currently minus 120, but I played Jason Knight when he was the one that was plus 100, as that's why it is stated on my straight plays, the final straight play, Jason Knight, half unit, plus 100, that's what I got him for earlier in the week, but yes, the public has moved, and I want to say, you know, the public's smart, because A, obviously the fight didn't happen, and, and B, Ricardo Lamas is a fucking badass. He's He is a very underrated grappler, but for that reason, I don't really see either guy getting submitted. Like, I don't see him submitting. I think he's an underrated grappler, but I don't see him submitting Knight. That being said, he's an underrated grappler, so I don't necessarily see Knight submitting him. I think this is going to be a real litmus test to see if, um, you know, the ceiling of Knight. Uh, I, amongst many, think he's got a pretty good ceiling. But this is that fight, you know. He has fights that are kind of close, you know. A lot of people discount Chaz Skelly, but I'm, I'm, I'm. You, if you guys know me, you know I'm high on Chaz Skelly. And uh, even though uh, my initial instinct was nine, I should have stuck with it there. It was, a, it was a fight to avoid for a reason. Uh, pick Skelly, stand by it. But man, I give him respect for that Skelly win because again, I'm a guy who likes Skelly, and and uh, and, and 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 man, Skelly was in shape for that fight. Sounded ready. All the right things, but Jason Knight is a motherfucking gamer. And uh, whether he's colliding strikes, coming forward, or countering, punches, kicks, elbows, using all eight limbs, he does it all and is only getting better. Nothing too flashy, but he commits, he's consistent, he puts volume, he has power, he has accuracy, and he's only getting better against Lamas, who... Again, underrated in the grappling, perhaps a bit overrated in the striking, though he did really well against Max Holloway. Ricardo Lamas is one of those guys where I, I pull my hair out. You know, there's another striker on this card that's not coming to me right away, but uh, seldom do they throw counters, ever throw a counter strike, and that is Ricardo Lamas. You know, I've stressed it on here before. He, he just circles, resets, strikes, circles, resets, strikes, and he's got good kicks from practical inside to outside leg kicks. Even the spinning kicks are deceptively accurate and... Um, he works well often for what that's worth, even if it's just distancing. But he comes MMA masters who I don't believe they get enough credit. The coaches sound like really nice guys in interviews. I don't mean to knock on them, but you start looking at fighters and looking at camps. You start to notice trends, and maybe it's because their head striking coach and head coaches are Kapoweta based. You know, it's more of a dance art, even though it's pretty. And I love Eddie Gordo from Tekken. Um, it's much more opportunistic art in the way it translates in general to combat sports, from kickboxing guys who've had copyrighted bet backgrounds to MMA. And it's really hard to have a process off. And in fact, their, own, you know, their best product and, and also subsequently best striker, Cesar Fajera, who, again, is he's the best striker and their best product for MMA Masters, arguably. But even he's a bit opportunistic because that's kind of cost him close scorecards win or lose, right? In his fights, even chin issues, potential chin issues, whatever past chin issues, whatever you want to classify it aside, opportunistic striking not you know especially if you you know if, if, if you know my sensibilities i'll usually side with process over opportunism and i pay a lot of times too for that of course 
you can't always be right. It's so it's all MMA never makes up its mind, <laughs> right? It's, it's, it can't be. It can't always be one thing. But but you know me, I, I generally side toward process, you know, especially as an analyst point of view, than just the opportunism to be there, and uh, that's why I like Knight on the feet. That's why I like him to get the decision. But you know he could come out there and ice Lamas. What if this is the part where Lamas starts to kind of. Uh, um, you know, show his wear. There's not a big sample size of Southpaws against Lamas. You know, the most recent one was Sanchez, who Sanchez obviously huge downtrend. That was a weird fight that they made, and you know, he's had troubles with Southpaws in the past. Granted, it was way in the past when Yuri Alcantara like uncomfortably knocked him out hard, and that was in WEC. That was at that was Yuri Alcantara at, at, at 155 in the WEC knocking out Ricardo Lamas. That was crazy. Anyways, I put a half a unit in on night. And uh, on that beat, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, we will knock out the main card for UFC 214 right here on the Protect Your Neck Podcast. Cucarachas enojadas. Right here on the Protect Your Neck podcast for the main card, UFC 214. And uh, another dog pick, I believe the last official dog pick, which makes four if you're scoring from home and going by the opening odds. I came into this fight, like most Manawa fights, leaning toward Manawa, and ended up being against him again. And I'm like, you know, minus the Anthony Johnson fight, I think, in recent history, um... Like, since that fight, I, I don't think I picked uh, any of his fights right. So, take that for what you will. But I do have reasoning for picking against him here. Similar um, reason for picking against him here is I have Ozdemir. Uh, similar to the last um, kind of fight. Uh, maybe not the last fight, the fight before. I don't know. I was talking about opportunism versus process on the... Uh, oh, yeah, it was the last fight. Uh, Knight versus Lamas. Um, I was talking about opportunism versus process. And this is like a classic uh, case of this because you have two guys who are on the verge of contention taking that next step despite being difference in age. Um, again, that's kind of just the state of the light heavyweight division. And these two guys are kind of the mirror image, especially with you know them knocking out the guys they have recently, mainly Sirkinoff, who was thought to be that guy. Now these guys are trying to be make their case for the next guy. Sorry for all this code guy talk here, but um, but yeah, and they're both kind of similar. I mean, they're both they're both pressure fighters, but in different ways, and they both have really good left hooks. Obviously, Manawa more flashy of a left hook, more dazzling. The more guy you probably associate with probably just the better striking and more dazzling and all that and all around, not just his left hook, right? But Ozdemir's got a really good process about him. He he does. He's seldomly out of position, which means he's always on balance, which means he's difficult to take down. At least he's improved that, especially since coming to the States and training. You've seen the kind of the dividends in the last year or two of his career, whether he's making return trips to now kind of doing the permanent home thing at South Florida at Combat Club. You see him doing a lot of wrestling reps through social media consistently throughout the last year. And uh, it shows, you know, he's got really good hand fighting, does the tripoding, turtling up when he gets, does get taken down, good high hoisting, hip bumps, 
Uh, just real good awareness there. Circles, uh, sh- consistently strikes off the brakes, you know. Um, and and Manawa can strike what really well off the brakes too. But again, a little more opportunistic throws in ones and twos. But Manawa more accurate, more devastating. So arguably can make up for it. But we've seen Manawa, you know, you know, like the, the, the Jan Blackowitz fight just kind of runs in my head. Like even in a fight that he's winning and a guy who's gassing and a guy who's not that great and a guy who's not that great in gassing and a guy who's not that great gassing and not having a great performance, we still saw Manawa still not have a good performance, right? And um, as the first time he only went to decision, and even though you know Ozemir doesn't have the most of decisions under his belt, he's primarily a finisher by the percentages. He has more longer experience in fights in ring time, arguably, than uh, Manawa does. Um, despite Manawa being older, Manawa started very late in life, does not have amateur re- uh, experience, uh, traditional bases, none of that, right? It's, which makes him even more impressive, by the way. Like it, It's super sick. I can't understate that enough, how sickly impressive I've been since Manawa, since uh, first laying eyes on him. Um, just just seeing like how preternaturally he moves and stuff, like the, the movements come so natural. Like, that's like a guy who's been doing martial arts, or that's like punching like a guy who's been boxing for years, and he hasn't, but he's been moving like that from like early on in his career. It's crazy. So, you know, he could prove me wrong here. He could he could certainly catch Ozemir, but Ozemir's shown to have a chin. And Ozemir's shown to not be afraid. I mean, coming in on short notice when you're training for a heavyweight fight and you had a bad weight cut, a debut, short notice in Texas, uh, going against OSP, say what you will, downtrend in hindsight. Granted, still amongst one of the more proven and consistent light heavyweight um measuring sticks and litmus tests that the division can offer, uh, at the very least. So, Benjamin, oh, he's laying down my tiger boy there. Uh, but yeah, so at the very least, he's, uh, you know, it's pro- proven in that sense. And, you know, it looked like he got rocked at a certain point in that fight. You see Brian Stan say it, but I think Brian Stan even corrects himself because I believe it was a bit overblown in the criticism, um, which Brian Stan, I believe, corrects himself because he thinks so, he thought so too. But because you see Ozdemir immediately just on balance, back firing, eyes wide open, right back at it. I think it was just fatigue where you get hit and you kind of stumble back off fatigue, but he, he regained himself and pushed through. Um, even though he was looking bad in that third round, and then of course comes back and has that weird performance against uh, Serkinov. Although if you look at like Ozdemir's kickboxing, he is a knockout that's actually pretty similar to that one he got against Serkinov, where it's just this weird, he slips and kind of... It almost looks like he's punching across his body. Like it shouldn't have a, like the, the a lot of the power should have been taken off the punch, but he hits the guy kind of behind the ear, and and even though he's kind of punching across his body with his right hand, uh, just knocks the guy and falls on his face. Um, it's on YouTube. But anyways, for what that's worth, and again, this guy's trained with Alistair Overeem, a big heavyweight, and again, Overeem older chin on his way out but he's still a fucking heavyweight who's dangerous offensively and a guy who's renowned for like fucking up his sparring partners i mean even in like his original like um ream videos or whatever like and where he was still training at like mike's gym or whatever back in holland he um you just see him like dropping his uh sparring partners with liver shots for fun like and then he when he leaves there he goes to train, like I said, at Henry Hoof now, uh, Ozemir does, South Florida, and for the last, like, year and a half or so, has been the guy who's known for the only guy in the room that's not afraid 
to be Anthony Johnson's sparring partner. Hence why you would see them, even now, Anthony Johnson, I mean, he looks heavier, but he's active as far as in the gym helping guys like Ozdemir out. He's active in that sense, which is surprising to me. I figured, you know, Anthony Johnson would have been checked out. But yeah, if you're if you're not afraid to spar with Anthony Johnson, that means you're probably his main training partner because most people are, even fighters, and rightfully so, probably terrified to spar with Anthony Johnson. So, I mean, he's sparring with the biggest, heaviest hitting guys at light heavyweight and heavyweight um, and guys who have competed at both divisions, both those guys, mind you. Um, so I I don't know if he's going to be scared of Manawa here. And if you look at Manawa, it's been guys who either can't strike with them, give him the space to strike, and or checking two out of three or all three check boxes were kind of you, not, you know, again, I don't, I don't like to do the whole fighter scared thing or anything like that, but I'm just saying, like, the momentum wasn't going their way, and the fighter was subconsciously semi-obviously acknowledging it through their body language. We'll just say that. And that's when you see Manawa doing his best. But when guys pressure him, even in fights that he won and guys that he might have knocked out, they had success almost every time, like 90 percentile, when people pressure Manawa. And uh, that's what Ozdemir does in every fight, um, whether he's getting caught, whether he's getting wrestled even early in his career where he wasn't as well as equipped. Hence, that's how he got his one loss in Bellator. It's a real ugly fight. I'm, uh, I don't know if there are circumstances. Even if there wasn't, it's justified. You're young. You're coming up. You're gonna face those gritty, uh, gritty wrestlers, experienced guys who are, you know, regional vets. But they're they're there to test you, and some of them will will test you more than you expect. So yeah, I mean, I don't know how high Ozemir's ceiling is, but I feel that he's grown from that those aforementioned points, and I feel like he's got a good shot here at dog money. Um. I played it small, but I, I I believe I state in the I don't think it's on the official void list, but I believe I state in the breakdown if you read it in the summary that this is one where it's like, hey, I'm I've been wrong on my like I said here my my um my Manawa picks and it's a dangerous fight regardless of your side here, so like don't play it like anything crazy. So, all right, next one is uh oh yes my my the one I'm looking forward to most and I'm sure many of you are and that is. Robbie Lawler versus Donald Cerrone. Robbie Lawler, open as the favorite, um, has remained around the same as the favorite, I believe. He's been hovering around like the minus 150. I got logged out, so let's pull him back up. And, or like, and I don't know if the comeback is around the same, plus 160 around that area for Cerrone. I don't know. I'm pulling it up now, but I got, uh, I got Robbie Lawler here. Um, you know, essentially... I like his southpaw pressure stylings, um, even though Cerrone's done well against southpaws, against pressure fighters who have that left hand, right hook, the hard left body kicks, a la Rafael Dos Anjos, his nightmare matchup. Robbie Lawler, though actually not as forward moving, not as consistent, and not as much volume as Rafael Dos Anjos, um, in my opinion, holds much greater consequence, though, you know? And, uh,. Donald Cerrone throughout his entire career is four and six against southpaws, or at least UFC quality southpaws. Um, you know, there might be a few southpaws that slipped my radar that were within his first ten fights. Those guys I don't recognize as much, but uh, everybody else I audited, and uh, yeah, Cerrone is four and six um, against southpaws. And by the way, the number plus one forty Cerrone currently minus one sixty. That's what I thought for Lawler. Um, I honestly didn't play anything here. I'm just going to crack a beer and enjoy this fight when it happens. Uh, just the intangible, though, you know, for for Lawler, he's been he's been. I think he's only been like dropped maybe once in the last six fights. But the stat is he's been you know visibly stunned or hurt in four out of his last six fights. Is the count? 
which is crazy to think about. Uh, it's going back to like his Matt Brown and Johnny Hendricks fight and then some. But uh, but yeah, um, he's been visibly hurt or stunned. But then again, Cerrone, you know, Cerrone's been dropped or stopped in three of his last six. A little more harder, uh, you know, slight notch down of the number. Pretty much we're dealing with the same thing. I mean, pretty much it could be a case of, like I stated in the breakdown, is the whose bottom's going to drop out first, which is kind of a depressing way to look at the matchup with how great these guys are. But let's be honest. Uh, Robbie Lawler left a piece. We thought he left a piece of himself with the with the Roy McDonald fight. He definitely left a piece of himself from the Carlos Condit fight. Both those guys, Lawler or Condit, haven't been the same. And now Cerrone snuck up on us. Uh, he's all of a sudden 34 and showing the signs that it's happening to him. And sh- less, should we be surprised? No. Look how active Cerrone is. How miles he has. And now he's got the age to match the miles. I mean, wow, it kind of makes sense, you know. And even in his victories, which is kind of a reason why I, I picked against Cerrone's last time out, you know, even that uh, victory against Brown, people forget that he got stunned a bunch of times and dropped. You know, he's been dropped with right hands, particularly on four different occasions in just his last two outings, which is why I think Robbie Lawler's right hook or check right hook, depending if he's coming forward or off the counter, he's affected with both. That's going to be the punch to look for in this fight. It is the quiet killer in Rob in Bob Lawler's arsenal. You know, he loves to load up on those left kicks um, since his uh, second stint in the UFC, and he's always had his patent left hand, right? But it's the right hand that's the quiet killer. And, um, you know, he's, he's also good at doing those kind of left to right shifts, very similar to Anthony Johnson, which is funny because... He's now training under Combat Club, Henry Hooft, coach of Anthony Johnson. And he has those similar shifts, um, those left-to-right shifts, which he uses to you know, slip his head off the center line. And it also keeps symbiotic movement to where he can slip out of the way defensively. But his counterbalance comes symbiotically in line with his strike. So he can slip, come back with his hook, slip the other bait, come back with a left hand, use a kick to set up the slip, get his head off the center line. And he can constantly be doing offense and defense at the same time while constantly moving, while even constantly moving forward. So even though he didn't have the as much, maybe as much forward pressure, if we're going to get nitty gritty and compare him to uh, uh, the prototype of a Rafael dos Anjos, but training with one of the, one of the, Second best pressure fighting coaches, right? Or even better. Uh, pressure fighting. Oh, no, not better. Uh, Hoffa. What am I saying? Not better. Fucking King's MMA. Master Cordero is the best, best there. Shout out. Uh, but uh, you know, I've been a long fan of Henry Hoof, the defender of Sam. I know he's always going, don't quit, Rumble. Come on. Don't quit. Where's the Rumble I know? But, uh, you know, he, he, I, I like his. I, I also, you know, uh, like what he's done with fighters like Michael Johnson. Again, another southpaw pressure fighter back to that point I was trying to make. So. Potential improvements, even though we can, you always can kind of see a neutral performance, or at least it's always a safe assumption. I don't know if there's a hard stat that's like 60 out of you know 100% of the time or 70 out of 100% of the time, whatever, 70% of the time. That first camp transition fight, just to kind of the safe assumption is a neutral performance is what I'm trying to say. So that could, you know, that could be it. But again, the intangibles for how Henry Hoof should fit with Lawler style is good and... Hoof's influence against a fighter like Cerrone, again, good influence. So all these intangibles point to good for um, 
for Bob Lawler there. Um, again, wrestling defensive and offensive is really underrated. His fight IQ is much better, so I suspect him to be safe, defend takedowns, and be safe even if he does end up in small scrambles with Cerrone. Most of this fight should end up on the feet. I see Lawler getting the better of key exchanges early and that kind of leading to a building victory. But we'll see. I mean, you know, Lawler, when he's been rocked in that statistic that I gave earlier, I think the last three times he's been stunned have been guys fainting and hitting him from the right side. Uh, Condit did it from a, uh, a right hand. Both Condit and Woodley um, fainted at, fainted him and drew him out and hit him with a right hand, uh, rocked him slash rocked knocked him down, even though I don't think he got scored the knockdown, which was really weird in that Condit fight. And then, of course, put him out, lost his title against Woodley. And uh, McDonald did a great job, even though Lawler was surprisingly able to control the center line, which should bode well for him in this matchup. Um, again, McDonald found a lot of success, though, when he was able to feint his defensive forward again, Except instead of throwing a right hand like Woodley or Condit did, uh, McDonald had that right head kick, and that's what kind of had a Robbie on Kuiya Street there, to use a parlance of probably not so much our times anymore because all our words are getting taken away. But yeah, um, that was that shot. So that's my take on that gunfight. Excited. Could talk more on it, but let's get this through to the next fight. Justine said, uh, it's a cyborg Justino, uh, minus 1373 million. Does it really matter what, what the odds are here? Yeah, um, huge favorite, Avenger, huge underdog. Um, you see, I put a freaking stupid, stupid little uh, prop, but I stand by it. it put a quarter unit on fight sees round two. I mean, if you can get real degenerate real fast with this card or cards where, at least in my opinion or in the general opinion, if a card doesn't have good bets, then. If you try to make a bet on a card that doesn't have good bets, you get the extra degenerate more plays, more than our usual degenerate plays, I should say. The, the, the plays get extra degenerating. Now I'm just making up words that don't exist. But uh, th and this is probably you know uh, one of those bets that really feel like that for me. But th there is legit reason for it. I mean, as do state in the big breakdown, you know, Tanya Evinger, very durable. And it's very comparable to Leslie Smith, except a much better grappler. She makes much better account for herself than Leslie Smith. Actually has a wrestling base. Decent level change, Tanya Evinger. Do I expect her to get Cyborg down? No. I don't expect her to uh, outpower those hips of Cyborg and her reactionary sprawl, which technically is good, not just her athletic and her strength. Like Technically, she's wrestling in her clinch game or underhook awareness. Everything's head position. Cyborg is, is, is stellar. But... This fight may hit the floor anyways because, you know, Cyborg has a knack for reversing, like, a trigger when someone tries to take her down. Maybe some of that Muay Thai base, too. She'll rough him up in the clench. She'll even, like, overexert herself to kind of make, make, her, make her point and fire back and take, you know, her opponent down when they try to take her down. And um, the reason why I could see, you know, Evinger surviving down there, not just because, you know, Evinger having one of the longest female careers to date hasn't been stopped, so you could make a a case that she has a better chin than um, any of the girls Cyborg has faced before because the numbers would prove that in sample size and end result so far. But also, she has the veteran savvy to survive on the ground, how to use leg locks and create a scramble. In fact, Evinger has a knack for creating a scramble. And she's actually, you know, she's not, you know, no juicy for me <laughs> by any means, but she gets to the back a lot. And it's, it's not by mistake. She hustles her ass off in scrambles. And, you know... Could she get to the back? Possibly. If she does, it'll be hell, hell interesting. Hella, hella Vegas kids say hella. Shout out to curl up and die. Um, but you know, I, I'm not counting on all that. 
but I am counting on her to kind of change levels, to change phases of the fight. Avenger, even though she has low, a low guard that could be inviting the marauding cyborg to just ice her on the feet, which could very well happen, obviously. And I expect it to eventually happen, but you know, could very well happen in the first round, the opening frame, the opening seconds even. But again, uh, the chin, the statistics on those sides, and Avenger, she usually stays outside of range until she's ready to attack. And even though she comes in wildly, she doesn't hang out in that space. She just kind of crashes distance and is immediately like changing her levels. And if she makes it into that kind of a dogfight, I could see her surviving. Because even if you look at you know, the th- credible threat of Marluz Kunin's guard, who even in, as credible as that threat is for what it was worth at that time in women's MMA, that, even in, within Marluz Kunin's prime, I still, and y'all know, Marluz Kunin is my favorite female fighter, but... I still don't think she was as as dangerous as Tanya Evinger. Am I saying Tanya Evinger is a super dangerous submission artist? No, that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that even, you know, measuring uh, Evinger's current skills to any of Marlouse's skills in her prime, Evinger more of a threat than Kunin is. That's all I'm saying. And um, against Kunin, even in that, you know, that four-rounder cyborg, because we're seeing a more measured cyborg. Ever since she went with Jason Perla, she's more measured and almost like testing out her ability. She was having fun, letting Lena Landsberg reverse her in the clinch. If you saw, she was smiling, you know? She could do that with Evinger, who is game, who is going to be there, who she respects, you know, who's tough, durable. So, you know, I could see that playfulness there too, but more specifically, back to the guard game, back to the ground techniques. And um, If you look at the fight with Kunin, the, mo- the more recent one, they fought twice, um, it goes to round four because even though Cyborg again she's quick she's quick on the trigger to take people down even if they even if that like that's their best chance of winning that make no mistake that was Marlus's best chance of winning was submitting Cyborg you see Cyborg um, pass the guard with ease but she would be reluctant to strike and then she would get up um, and real play positionally safe you know or Kunin would regard and if she regarded after Cyborg passed Cyborg would step up and leave the guard. Which is smart. It shows her fight IQ, but it also, sh- you know, it, which is good in the long run. But it feels this bet that I'm getting back to the the, the fight will start round three. Um, where is it? Ah, pulling it up. Sorry. Starts round two. Or fight starts round two. Sorry, plus one fifty. I put a quarter unit on it, and, and and that's why I could see at least you know her making it scrappy and scrambly. Um, so at least round one, and as far as like you know, the over is set at two and a half. I don't, or one and a half, I believe, and that's a whole half round. A whole half round could be an eternity with Cyborg, and you're only getting you know like seventy five cents in the dollar more, I believe, or something, depending on where the odds are where at when you hear this. But right now you are. So as far as any type of value as a bet, probably not worth betting at all to be honest. I don't suggest you follow me on this, but again, I'm gonna be honest with my plays. That's my play, and for what it's worth. In my opinion, the most bang-for-your-buck realistic value without getting too greedy if you're looking for an angle to play the most inflated line and matchup on the card. Co-main event time. Ty Run Woodley versus Damian. Damian Maya. Man, this is... Uh, I feel like I'm rooting against a lot of my picks here, but this is one I'm definitely rooting against. I'm a huge Damian Maya fan. My girlfriend... Her, they, Maya and Jacare are favorite fighters. Maybe Maya more because I don't know, I don't know why she compares. She compares her dog uh, Rango to Damian Maya because the way they they grapple. Her dog and my dog grapple, and they have different styles. And her dog will go to the back and kind of like, 
to it, like a half guard and come up. Whereas uh, my dog, Benjamin, is more of a traditional boxer. He goes for those tie plums and just face jabs. and then Or he'll go and like kind of have a single leg and like <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll wrestle at the back leg. It's funny. I love watching animals wrestle. It's, 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 it's hilarious. But anyways, uh, Damian Maya, we're, we're big Damian Maya's here at the Dan Tom household. So we'll be rooting for him. But the analyst has to pick Woodley. I mean... You know, on paper, I could see why this should be a bad matchup, although I hopefully I'll do an okay job of explaining here. But in case I don't, please, I encourage you to go check out my breakdown at MixedMartialIslands.com. Do a better job of explaining it there. Why uh, the on-paper dynamic may not be as favorable to Woodley as, as, as one might expect. Um, essentially, you know, Woodley's coming. He had a head start on camp. He's coming in looking in great shape. And even if all things being equal, I could see people get, just because he's younger, he's more athletic, you know, you're going to give the stamina edge to Woodley regardless. But Woodley, too, lest we not forget, has a propensity to fade in his fights. And this is a trend that holds uh, true. He did a pretty good job in that Gastelum fight, though, back in January 2015 or whenever it was. But the trend just went back to fading as the fight went on. Uh, except for his fight with Steven Thompson, the first one, where in the fourth round, you see the numbers jump up because he almost got the finish, and he uh, landed a lot of those strikes on the ground, which kind of inflated those numbers, which made it weird. Because, again, th these were two fights where you could make credible cases for Steven Wonderboy. I, I scored the first one for Wonderboy, but, yeah, you're biased. You like Wonderboy, and you picked them both. Yes, I did, but even though you can make a credible argument as well, in my opinion, for Wonderboy... I did not score the second one for Wonderboy, nor did I have a problem with the decision going to Woodley. That said, he didn't exactly put a stamp on it, and the most stamp he put on a fight in recent, in the last three years, was his fight to get the title, which, again, take nothing away. Props, you just took out the Warlord, Ruthless Bob Lawler, the man, right? But again, it was the right hand the first round. It was the typical Woodley. We didn't learn much. And, uh... Even though, despite you know the arguments I just made against those five-round fights with Thompson, you, you, we did see improvements to Woodley. Again, much credit to Woodley. Uh, big fan of what Woodley does outside of the octagon as far as helping his community uh, in Missouri and Ferguson. Big props to him on that. Definitely do not want to come off as a Woodley hater. But how can you not uh, root for Damian Maia? Uh, Maybe I preface that because I was about to call I was I'm about to call Damian Maya the good guy, but I guess I preference the Woodley thing why I respect him because just because I'm calling Damian Maya the good guy doesn't mean Woodley's the bad guy here by any means. But I just you just rooting for Damian Maya, who by the way in 24 of his UFC fights, 89 passes in 25 fights, or I think and in, in those 25 fights I believe 20 or 21 he's won the first round, so he's only lost four first rounds in his last 25 fights. In other words. Um. Uh, again, I'm pulling this off the top of my head or from my chicken scratch here from when I, I broke this fight down last week. But yeah, it was really impressive. And the reason that that's interesting is because he always comes out kind of a a ball on fire, even when he was you know doing his dumb game plan where he wasn't wrestling as much and he was kind of striking more. He still would come out strong in those first rounds. But the reason why I'm circling back to the gas thing is you could make an argument that Damian Maia is in shape with a quick turnaround, maybe it didn't affect him badly because he had a healthy camp. And sure, he said he had a healthy camp. Was Well, of course they're going to say that, Dan. What is he going to say? I didn't have a healthy camp. But at the same time, I don't know. I hate listening to those things. It's bullshit. It doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. But yeah, for what it's worth, I feel like 
Damian Maya's answers and body language were more positive than your typical answers, which tells me he might have actually had a good and better than expected camp where they just focus on what they need to do, which is not really hard with the dynamic of the matchup. And again, Damian Maya's style and trend, he's really just kind of melded his MMA and jiu-jitsu game with his wrestling into this one solid sword. And he's added like new folds like the half guard get-up game, which is something that um you're seeing more people like like my man Luke Thomas over there. Um I think he did a maybe did a post thing on uh I think he did one on after like Masvidal Maya. But this I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or compare it, but this is this is something that's proven in my work. Big fan of Damian Maya's game. This is hell, you can even go look I'm I even do these own processes and I can pull up grappling footage, uh, my competition footage, and I'm, I'm ripping off Damian Maya's game. Like, that's how much I'm obsessed with this dude. So, I mean, I've been a big fan of his game for a while. I use his half-guard game all day in the gym, especially now being a fucking old man, getting back in there with these savages. I actually just say Damian Maya in my head. I'm like, all right, old man jiu-jitsu, Damian Maya time. I just go to half-guard when I can't uh, when I can't win the wrestles and scrambles because I really don't feel like competing and hurting and pulling something. So I kind of let guys float, let them make the mistake, go to half-guard. Uh, let them grab something, let them think they're going to get their darts, their guillotine, come up with that underhook, get up, feeds right into the single leg. and But, of course, my game's not like Maya, because Maya, man, he just, he even, everything has a purpose. Even when he comes back up into the single leg, he puts his leg in a certain weaving interlock position on the single leg, where it either forces you to the weak side, where you don't have a post, so you can get the takedown, or gives him access to your back because if you really understand the half guard game you understand that whether you're doing these mid wrestling positions like Maya's doing whether you're on top or you're just flat out on bottom there's a way to the back that having that you know 50-50 so to speak not 50-50 position as far as leg locks but that 50-50 intertwining of legs that technically substantiates or classifies makes if you will a half guard how that plays into the mechanics of back takes. And again, this is probably completely lost as it's audio, and especially if you're not a grappler. But if you're a grappler, you know what I'm saying. If not, go watch, um, I don't know if they, I'm not sure. I know they covered like the smash and leg we've passed, but I, I, I'm sure they've added it too. But go watch BJ, BJJ Scout. I haven't watched any of their stuff recently. Again, I can't really, that sucks, man. That's one thing that sucks as an analyst. I really limited myself, but that doesn't mean I can't give credit where credit's due. Go to their YouTube channel, BJJ Scout. It's some awesome work. Um, they're, they're Dominic Cruz and Damian Maya studies back in the day. I'm sure they add their, their parts to it. Uh, but yeah, that, that's a better visual one. But yeah, Damian Maya's game, you know, it's really deceptive. He doesn't need the takedown. He could do half guard pulling. And we saw Tyron Woodley in the Jake Shields fight where... Um, you know, it could happen here where Tyron, he really didn't give a lot of ground to Jake Shields. It's just he got caught playing defense instead of, like, circling. You know, he has, he does everything right, Tyron. He's, you know, uh, the athletic explosiveness and all that. But, no, no, he's smart. He has great techniques. He has good head positioning, hips, hand fighting. All these positions are correct, except he doesn't have that urgency like a Robert Whitaker, or guys that I point to where they circle, they break the grip, and they get the fuck out of Dodge, right? Woodley will stay there. Woodley will stay there, will allow himself to get pushed into the fence, and then he'll he'll reassert underhooks like he's doing back and forth with Shield, where he'll get him. Like, okay, well, fine, I can reverse you at any time. And maybe that's why you have that he has that lackadaisical comfort there, because he knows I'm not going to get taken down. Not only am I going to not get taken down, I'm strong. I'm Woodley. I can reverse him when I want to. And he does reverse him when he wants to, but if you look, he doesn't break away. And then not only does he not break away, he'll get reversed once again. And this happens in any fight where he stays prolonged in the clinch. So even if he has better gas tank than Maya on paper, 
I don't know if that's a good idea if he stays playing defense because even if he's as disciplined mentally and physically in his gas tank to do it successfully, which I and I believe he has the techniques and all those check boxes to do so. What exactly in that equation is winning him the round? So if Damian Maya does make it to the end, well, what's going to happen? Now, furthermore, I keep looping back to the gas tanks, but when you look at the gas tanks, it's real deceptive. Like Damian Maya had a stretch from the the Shields fight, which, by the way, Shields won the Woodley fight, no problem. Um, not a close fight, but a competitive one. But a clear decision for Shields over Woodley. However, I actually scored, especially on second watch, scored uh, Damian's fight with Shields for him. It was close. It came down to the fifth round, and essentially, you either thought that Jake Shields did enough work to bank it early, which numbers would suggest that there's an argument for it. No, again, no robbery, no, no big problem. But I'm of the mindset that uh, Maya did enough to take the round late, and again, end of the round weighs more, especially when it's the end of the. F- last round of the fight because, you know, uh person who won the fight, essentially, it's like that schoolyard mentality, which is why, you know, again, even though there's an argument that you can even score the second fight for Steven Thompson over Woodley, the reason why I didn't have a problem with it, that I scored it for Woodley is because Woodley punctuated, if you remember, on the second fight, he punctuated the last round. So even though it's not official, it's not by the round-by-round scorecards, I understand that. I understand that, 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 that my argument falls apart just there. But for what it's worth, I am a subscriber. To the, the, that weighs more with me personally for what it's worth. I'm not a judge. But it weighs more with me for the guy who punctuates at the end. And I think Damian Maia did that. Neither here nor there. You know, he, he his gas tank still you know um, was still as troublesome. And Jake Shield did some cool things in the grappling, you know, in the few grappling stanzas. But even if you look when Damian Mayo's tired, this is the point I'm trying to make. He grapples well when he's tired. It's striking stanzas that are the common culprit in Damian Mayo fights that sway the momentum. In that aforementioned stretch with Ryan LaFair, he was grappling really well. And even, you know, it's, it, it, it wasn't until the fifth round. He actually had a good gas tank and good poker face to the fourth round. It wasn't until the fifth round until we see Damian Mayo start doing the dropping down to the back, and I hate that. I even hated when Pepe was doing it, who wasn't doing it nearly as bad against Burgos as Maya was doing it to LaFlair. And I remember being madding at it. I may have had a bet on LaFlair, too, at the time. But I, I was maddening, like, come on. Oh my. And you could tell it was frustrating with Big John, who took a point from Maya with just a second to go, where it didn't matter in the fight. But that's how frustrated Big John, too, was uh, officiating it. And as bad as that was, that doesn't change the fact that even when he was tired, through moments in that fifth round, and even in the fourth and third, in hindsight, where you saw that he was tired and he was just had it in a poker face, he was grappling well. It was the striking stances where he wasn't doing well. And if you trace back and look at it with a fine-tooth comb, it was the striking stances that swayed that. Again, the same stretch of, of Maya's suspect cardio in that, in, that, in, that, in that big pocket. You also find, yes, the Roy McDonald fight where he mounts him, can't get the finish, and we see him fade. Which is fine. That happens in a lot of dynamics of a lot of matches. It's not abnormal. And I'm not making excuses for my, you know, again, gas tank issues are gas tank issues. But if you look at it, it was within the striking realms you see Maya get really hurt. Like, Roy McDonald hits Maya with, like, four or five right hands in that second round and some body shots that really take it out of him. And you could see that he's putting on a poker face. Like, Maya's a better poker face than I realize. Like, he is more... I'm defending him from being hurt and tired right now, but at the same time, I'm also omitting like in, in going through the fine tooth comb he is also more hurt and tired than you realize than he leads on um which is kind of a a weird kind of arg- counter argument depending on how you look at it from perspective but but again it just 
feeds to my point here that it's striking stanzas that tire him. And, of course, if he's striking with Woodley, he's going to be at a disadvantage anyways. That's where Woodley should have his biggest on-paper advantage as well as where Woodley will have his biggest chance of winning the fight as Woodley's counter right hand. Um, I weigh a lot more in this fight than Damian Maya's. Underrated, we forget that even though Damian Maya smartly went away from his striking he made some real legitimate improvements there. Again, tagging guys like Ryan LaFleur and, and even Chris Wyman, you look back to his middleweight bouts, like he has pop on his hands. Mark Munoz, even though he lost that fight, it was a competitive fight. Um, he's popping guys with his hands and, and has used that before. Even got some knockdowns in that I forgot about when, you know, going back. I went, man, I went back deep on Damian Maya for this one, probably more deep than I needed to go. I just was so excited for this fight um i i did so but but yeah i mean underrated things to like still yet yes woodley should have the advantage of striking but on the flip side to to what i said about maya and the kind of weird intricacy about his grappling to where you know again if he had a good camp and if he gets a grappling fight going and i, I like i said the statistic where he wins around ones if he forces a grappling fight it could be interesting because again not only does woodley get tired woodley on the flip side Gets more. He does pretty well in striking. Like I said, from the Gastelum to to his Stephen Thompson, we see him hold his own, add to his own game, go longer in fights within the striking realm. But if you look where Woodley's traditionally gas, it's when guys have not just pressured with him because pressure gives him trouble. Which Damian Maya's game is all pressure, right? From every sense of the, even when he is striking with you, it's pressure. His whole game is pressure fighting from grappling, wrestling. Uh, mind and body presence, footwork, spacey, stalks in, feints in, strikes in, everything is pressure, but also grappling is what what tires out Woodley. If you look at traditionally, you know, the, the Jake Shield fights that, that you know, I was just talking about, um, you know, fights that have gotten him tired, even the Marquardt fight, I know he lost because he was getting, you know, pieced up at the end of the fence, but, you know, he really gassed out in that fight, that fight. I think that's why he so was so tentative about if he didn't finish guys early, we would see a tentative Woodley, a make-or-break Woodley, a tentative Woodley, and or all of the above Woodley. Uh, I think because of that subconscious, because, you know, you'll see guys, you, you know what it's like to make yourself vulnerable in the fight, be to be tired, and have your worst fears come to life. Maybe these were fears that happened in the practice room that he was able, up until that point in force was able to keep it out of the fight, but... He got greedy because he hurt. They hurt each other multiple times before Marquardt finished him that fight. If you remember, it went all the way to the fourth round. But he he let himself too vulnerable. He opened the door too wide and let too much get in before he could shut the door back. And, and, and he was tired. And he and you know that sticks with you. And I think that's why he kind of has had that reservation where you know Rogan would pick up on it. But like, oh, it's the muscle, which is kind of true in scientific fact. That is true. And Willie would get mad at him, but. There was a certain body language of worry there, and we've seen it. We, you know, we've seen it. You look, you go like I said, like I said earlier. You look at the numbers; they kind of downtrend as time goes on. So, if Maya, in other words, comes out, wins the first round like he normally does, not only wins the first round, first round, but you know, kind of like the the Hicks and Gracie, he gets his heart rate down on purpose with his yoga, but then will come out after he has his heart rate down and put pressure on his opponent to get his opponent's heart rate up because he kickstarts the fight. To, he knows that if he gets his opponent starting at a high, high, higher heart rate, he will have the advantage in the tortoise or the hare as far as the grappling goes because Hickson was a conditioned guy, of course, but more importantly, he knew how to keep calm. So if Damian Maya, you know, similar to that, that lineage, right, as far as uh, style and bodies of spirit, if he can do that and get Woodley to just lose that first round, get him behind the gun, even if he can't get him down or submit him, but just grapple and get him in his and make him wrestle, it becomes a real interesting fight. 
becomes a real interesting fight. I mean, immediately Woodley's right hand kind of gets a lot of sting taken off it if Maya can even just make him clinch grapple and defend for a round. So, I mean, this fight could be really deceptively close. I'd be lying if I said uh, I didn't put anything on the Maya sub. I'd be lying. And, uh, you know, for that fun parlay I put, which kind of hedges if Woodley gets the knockout or Maya gets the sub that does not go the distance, minus 350 is a part of that fun parlay. But, Dan, your official pick is Woodley by decision. That's false advertising, bro. Hey, the recommended plays are for fun, and they're my plays, not your plays. And, again, by the fun parlay, I felt like I had to give you something because there wasn't anything I liked, whereas a bunch of people are probably having Woodley and Jones. No I don't blame you, by the way, for parlaying that. When are you going to get two guys who are projected to win their matchups? Uh, incredible athletes, champ and slash rightful champ. Um, I don't blame you for those. But I'll get to the Jones one here in a second. But that's the reason uh, I'm staying away from the Woodley one as far as my parlay pieces and why I'm not playing Woodley straight up, why I'm using that angle for the parlay, and why personally <laughs> maybe putting some money on sub for my boy for fun. Because, again, I can separate what the fan in me wants to what the analyst in me sees and uh, – what the analyst in me sees, what the homework, the study I did, I be- believe me, that's right. I'm not trying to dissuade you there, even though it says decision. You read the summary. It states this thing can get ugly for the aforementions real quick. The intangibles fly off the handle. And so does the time on this podcast. Let's get to the main event. John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, too. Again, you all know my feelings on Jones. I'm not going to crack. I'm not going to harp on him here. In fact, if you even read my summary, I don't defend Jones because I won't <laughs> defend the things that he does, does. But what I do say in my summary is that even though it can be hard to... Uh, redeem oneself from the things Jones has been proven guilty of does not change the fact that Jones is a former champion who is motivated and who has never lost his throne in battle. And that is a fact. And uh, yes, the fan of me is rooting for DC. Fan of me may have played DC here because, uh, again, I don't, <laughs> I don't, boy, I really don't, can't think of anybody that I root for. I mean, there was a couple of people back in the day in like hardcore fandom where I didn't, I didn't like this guy or this or whatever. He beat my guy back in the day. But there's none of that now, especially now, none of that. But John Jones, well, let's just say he's one of the few guys I make exception for. Nevertheless, like I just said, I always keep it pro. Uh, you don't see any uh, taking shots at John Jones. Very complimentary uh, in the summary there. And I picked him. Uh, he is the pick. He's a justified pick uh, by decision because, again, I don't. This is a fight where, you know, I could see either guy getting a finish. I could see either guy getting a decision. I do think it is closer than people may think. I don't want to say he's the odds project because a John Jones fight to be getting that odds. That is good odds. But then again, 19 and 1 Cormier versus 22 and 1 Jones. This is like the best of the best, best of all time, right? I mean, you, you take away Cormier's head-to-head loss against John Jones. He's one of the best pound-for-pound fighters. Undefeated at heavyweight. Strike Force Grand Prix pre-winner. Beat everybody at uh, light heavyweight minus Jones. Got the title light heavyweight. Defended it multiple times. Uh, Olympian. I mean, god damn Cormier. If he beats Jones, he should get that spot. I believe he should be the number one pound-for-pound fighter. Um, but if Jones uh, wins, he's not only back, but probably, you know, obviously back in the standings of rankings and even unofficial BS rankings that are pound for pound. As I would not disagree as BS is objective as it is. Yeah, John Jones wins. He's number one. This is like the battle for number one pound for pound, not just for the title, in other words. Like, it's a, and as stupid as pound for pound, as subjective as it is, this is a fight you can actually justify it. Both these guys are that good from their on paper accolades to just how fucking good they are and, and, and the, the magic. Um, obviously Jones a little more palpable magic, a little more flashy, a little more appealing to the eyes magic, but the magic that they both bring to the octagon. Um, 
And, you know, again, even though, you know, I'm not Alec Jones as a person, boy, does he bring out the best of me as far as, like, writing and analysis goes. Because I love watching uh, martial artists work, man. And again, just because I don't like somebody's man, I can't give them credit. Just because I pick somebody or give them credit doesn't mean I can't dislike them, too, on the other hand. You know, I'm not, I, we're adults. We're adults. And if it's, uh, you know, justified reasoning, we can, you can, uh, you can have these opinions, folks. It doesn't always have to be red team versus blue team here. You can not like certain parts of an aspect of a human being, and you can completely respect other parts. That's okay. And I respect those parts of John Jones, you know. Um, I don't like to read my lines like a fucking... It's very um, self-serving bullshit, like egotistical, but this line that always just sticks with me, um, you know, as far as Jones, what he did to like Teixeira and Cormier in the first fight. Because that Teixeira fight, by the way, is one of my... Favorite John Jones performance. I don't think he gets enough credit. Like that was one of the most impressive John Jones performances, in my opinion. I think, you know, his his rise as impressive as it was. You can't take anything away from it. And those names are great, and you can't change that. Nor should you. You know, he was catching people kind of on their way down. And Teixeira, he's kind of gone down since then. True, but Teixeira has been consistently been underrated. Now, uh, a couple years ago, and when that fight happened, then was uh underrated but yeah people were talking about John Jones uh, him as maybe the guy maybe the, there were people and I was one of those people but but overall I mean there wasn't a lot of people giving Teixeira a chance and Teixeira they weren't giving him a chance but they would, would say you know John Jones do not want to box this guy though he doesn't want to be in the clinch with this guy and he did he did just that and that's why that Teixeira fight so impressive he, he went into his strength and that's why I have the plus minus for John Jones fights to his opponent's strengths and you know it will eventually cost him will it here you know, probably not I'm not picking it to. I hope it does, but no. Uh, however, I do write that on there because I think that will eventually be his undoing. I mean, guy that talented, uh, you can only test the limit so much in the octagon, and that's only proven by the way he conducts himself outside, not trying to take more unwarranted, not unwarranted, but I'm just trying, not trying to take more shots at the guy, but it is a legitimate point though, right? As far as the risk management, you look at that, it translates. You know, Our fighting styles translate to who we are as people. You know, more of a defensive counterfighter that kind of goes with my personalities. You know, someone may have a be a hothead. Maybe they're more of an aggressive pressure fight. You know, these things aren't hard and fast rules. But as somebody who spent their life doing martial arts and just teaching, being on all sides of the game, something that I notice, and John Jones certainly could fit that that moniker, that 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 kind of stereotype, that structure, that 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 product there. You know doesn't have the best risk management and uh but again i don't know if it's going to cost him here I, I hope it does things to look for though um again john jones is clinch and the reason why it's so important not just how impressive it is and all the things he can do which read my breakdown i kind of go into his clinch game but um it's the fact that cormier's game is like based around the clinch like his best striking is arguably his dirty boxing in recent you know his right hand his over hand rights were doing him well from beginning of his career to the regional scene to midway through when he was knocking out Bigfoot Silva strike force heavyweight Grand Prix but lately it's been his dirty boxing and his wrestling has always been strongest in the clinch like you don't see him do very much reactional traditional shots Daniel Hormey is always doing high host high hoisting high crotches single leg lifts you know those, those type of choices from the clinch like his game depends on the clinch that's why it was so impressive and that's why it's more importantly so important that John Jones emphasized the clinch and and, and took Cormier apart there which 
no issue then or now the, how it was scored, but I do argue that that fight was a bit closer. You can make arguments for Cormier. Cormier looked dejected and defeated at round three, but it's kind of crazy because you don't see like a significant blow. I think it was the fatigue and the doubt because it was the first time he, he met someone so good, and you look at it. Again, it's so impressive. Jones shut everything down. Cormier goes back to his corner at the end of the third, kind of defeated, and that's where Jones firmly sinks his grip. But you can make a slight argument for the third, and in my opinion, more solid arguments for the first two rounds to go Cormier. And again, whether they're slight arguments, you know, and however strong or not strong you may feel they are, judges and fights score round by round by the you know boxing criteria, 10-9 uh, scoring criteria. So you only need three rounds to win the fight. So if you can make an argument for three rounds, well, you can make an argument for someone to win the fight. That's all I'm saying. Again, not hanging my head on it. It's not even that super relevant. But the adjustments, when you look at what happened, the adjustments that could be made, is I think we could see Daniel Cormier throw more leg kicks. The deceptive kicker, Cormier throws really good kicks to the body and to the leg, and he has had a really good effect with it. But he kind of stopped throwing them as the fight went on, and you could see why. He got tired, and legs take kicks take much more energy than punches, getting your legs up and you know, throwing your fists. But if you look at, like, when I'm looking at John Jones' fights, like going back to his early mid-career to now, victory and defeat, easy or not easy, distance or finish, he always seems to be limping off the battlefield and limping toward the end of fights or gingerly walking and stepping at the very least. And he's reportedly had foot problems before, and which makes sense. You hear guys, you know, guys that get involved with their kicking, and they hurt themselves, and they don't want to throw anymore. How many times have we heard that? Even the greats, from Anderson Silva to Jose Alba, right? Um, it could be a case here as well with another great, the great, you know, John Jones. Uh, you know, we saw him hurt his, uh, he had, his, you know, Chael Sonnen. It wasn't from a kick; it was from posting and pressing against the mat in a scramble, which was even more freakish. But his no, but his bone busted through his toe. That's freakish, man. Again, these mental things, these injuries kind of, you know, kind of stay with you. And you'll see him, even when he gets leg kicked, he'll quickly switch stance, even if he's not being threatened, or there shouldn't be a reason why he feels feel threatened in a fight. If someone attacks a leg, you'll see him quickly switch stance. Now, sometimes, yes, he will switch stance on his own. He's just trying to throw you off and give you different looks, because that's John Jones, of course. But if you, if you look at it when guys do lamp substantial shots to his leg, he's got a great poker face because he's John Jones. He's, he's, he's a fantastic competitor. But his body language suggests that he doesn't like that. So I'm going to be real interested to see if Cormier doesn't look to, you know, like if last fight and just be so urgent and frantic and just go in and exhaust himself into a fight that he's losing in the clinch and maybe look to just exploit those advantages at range. Because Cormier's improved. I mean, we saw it against the taller Gustafson and his subsequent fights since, since then. He would enter range and he has made, even though he's, you know, 38 freaking years old or whatever. Cormier, you know, has made improvements to his game despite getting older and age. We'll see. I'm rooting for him. Uh, I'm not. I'm not counting on too much. Um, yep, that's essentially the the breakdown. No plays on Jones there for that reason. It's kind of easy to read between the lines of that. I'm. 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 I might be doing personal plays against my picks here, but at the same time, I'm not trying to dog in, nor do I ever do that. The analysis is what the analysis is. I always stand by that. There won't be any revisionist history. But I'm also going to be honest with you, and I'm being honest with you, um, because I feel it's justified. So I just, just you know, doing some explaining there. Uh, 
All right, uh, let's get to it. Uh, I'm going to pull up see if we have any subs in transit. We did have an email. We had a couple emails, but uh, since we're running long, I am not going to answer those. But a lot of these were like kind of the same theme. So in a future episode, um, by the way, uh, the Protect Your Neck podcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to, you know, outside of the DM at the PYM podcast on Instagram, Facebook, or not 40 characters or beyond a DM, if you don't want to do in other words, if you don't want to connect with us to the big three, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, that's our, our Gmail, uh, the Protect Your Neck Podcast at gmail.com. You can email questions. I will answer in show. Again, this one's going to kind of run long, and the question will run long, so I'm going to skip that one um, for now. Uh, although we did get some Amazon click-throughs, I do want to give quick shout-outs uh, before we get out of here. Um, we had somebody buy... Again, it'll just list what it was. This won't list your name, so it'll just list what you bought. So I'll just be giving you shoutouts anonymously to what you bought, and probably developing a story and my own. I'll put my own narrative on your purchase for probably why you bought these things. Although this one, I don't, I don't know. This one's a Keurig. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's one of those uh, a Keurig coffee home unit. That actually was a. And these things are affordable, by the way, if you want to go buy them. But it was a pretty penny as far as like a first purchase item. So again, these these Amazon click-throughs on the breakdown on our site, mixedmartialimals.com, where you can support me, the website, the work, whatever you want to support uh, or not support without spending any extra money when you go to your Amazon shopping. Click through the links. Um, and thank you very much because a little bit kicks, gets kicked back to us. So thank you, whoever bought the Keurig coffee. I hope you are... Um, caffeinating a army of marauding gnomes that you are raising to uh, hunt down the Keebler elves for putting high fructose corn syrup and poisoning, poisoning us, yes, with their morsely chocolate chip morsels, and, and hopefully you're using your Keurig to, to, uh, to, to uh, you know, uh, make orc-like armies of these gnomes, in fact, and you're arming them with minor utensils so they can stab the shit out of those Keebler elves. Or you're probably just making good Keurig coffee, either or whatever, whatever sounds cool. And the other two, this was a, this was a bulk purchase. Uh, two DVDs. This is a random pairing. UFC 59. Um, I don't know. Was that Orlovsky and Eiler? No, that was Orlovsky Sylvia, and um, a non MMA, a movie Eastern Promises. Eastern Promises. There, that was a uh, same director as a. Uh, that's Cronenberg. Oh, she has Cronenberg, right? Yeah, Cronenberg. History of Violence there. Viggo Mortensen. Fucking Steve Miocic's doppelganger. And uh, Vincent Cassell. Vinny Cassell. That was a, that's a weird pairing. UFC 59 and... Is there a Russian pairing there? Maybe you're just like into Russians grappling because you have um, the really slow-paced match between Khorolovsky and Sylvia my big peepee. And uh, you have the epic... <laughs> Another grappling scene with even less clothes than an octagon fight. You have the epic shower fight scene for Eastern Promises. Y'all have seen that? Oh, God. Now I have fucking view of Mortensen's fucking swinging, swinging piece in his uh, shower room. I'll never look at a sauna room the same. God. <laughs> that, that epic fight scene. Jeez. Maybe fifty UFC 59, you get warmed up, and the desserts Eastern Promises. There you go. A little two different kind of Russian grappling match. Oh, God. All right, I'm just going to skip trying to make a narrative for that. I don't want to know why you bought the movies, but thank you. Thank you for buying the movies. Thank you for clicking through. Um, uh, again, we have on it, on it stuff there too as well if you want to do that. PayPal, we actually got a, a donation and 
if you don't want, you know, your names, I'm kind of weird about that. I, you, I just appreciate that you're donating. This is kind of just you being nice from the straight straightness from your heart. Um, and at B Goose, um, at B Goose Brian G, he actually hit me up on Twitter saying he did. So I, I don't feel bad about saying your name, but thank you for the donation, man. I really appreciate that. Um, I've seen you reach out to me and follow my work before, man. So I guess that means you like the breakdown. I, I, and you're not the only ones. I appreciate the other people too. Uh, I, I believe me. It doesn't even matter if, if it's just a penny, and I'm not gonna reveal the amount. Uh, by the way, uh, out of respect, that's one thing I definitely won't reveal. And if you, you, names, I'll, I'll be very vague on if I do. I, you know, maybe just give a real vague iteration of it. Maybe just the first name without even using the full name. But I definitely won't say amounts because the amounts actually, you know, also don't matter. Like literally, what I was gonna say is it could be a fucking half a penny, not even a penny. And just like the gesture that you took the time to be like, oh, I'm gonna give half a penny to this asshole because this poor set of a bitch fucking, um, it's been slaving his ass off for the last two years um, <laughs> against his health and free time. And I'm not trying to complain or go on a, a violent or anything like that, but like these are legitimate things that, especially as of late, uh, especially, you know, Dan Tom, I wear my heart on my sleeve and treat, read between the lines sometimes. It's been a tough couple months. And man, just even just little gestures, whether it's a click through the Amazon, uh, a donate or even nothing spending no money at all just you guys's kind words on twitter which there are many of you and i try to retweet through the protecting podcast i'm kind of weird about retweeting through my account i'm just weird about the self-congratulatory thing it's weird i don't know i'm just struggling between self-promotion and self-deprecation it's a weird thing i'm a shitty businessman i'm a martial artist first obviously cause i'm such a shitty businessman unfortunately but yeah i appreciate it nonetheless so uh I'll get to the submission trans transitions, the emails, um, iTunes reviews, which we got some more iTunes reviews, five-star uh, five reviews. Thank you for those, by the way, too. Another way to support, you know, just just telling a friend, of course, the best, but thank you for those. Uh, again, I'm not going to waste any more of your time with those. <sighs> I'm going to get out of here. Um, what we'll do, we'll be doing an after party. Hopefully, won't get as out of control as the last time. we some barbecuing. Old B-Ride, Ryan is back from Costa Rica, so we'll probably do an after-party this and this Saturday, recapping this crazy event. So, uh, until then, mind your bets, be careful when you see Russian guys with leather jackets, enter the shower room, and always protect your neck.